You know, you can make a pretty good case that two of Alabama's chief cultural exports are true crime stories and Harper Lee. But did you know Harper Lee was something of a true crime buff herself? By now, we all probably know her role in helping shape Truman Capote's classic work, In Cold Blood. But a new book from Casey Sepp explores the untold story of Lee's unfinished work, The Reverend, which was the story of an alleged serial killer in Alexander City, Alabama. Welcome back to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and this week we are talking with Casey Sepp about her book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. We recorded our conversation at Starline Books, an independent bookstore in Chattanooga, and Star Lowe, the store's owner, warned me beforehand that the building might be haunted. It turns out the local chapter of the Klan had convened there decades before. So if you hear any mysterious sounds on the show, we're going to chalk it up to that. And if not, well, the murders outlined in Casey's books are plenty creepy themselves. We discuss what drew Harper Lee to these stories, what continues to draw the world to Harper Lee, and of course, the unfinished business left in the South. So gather round as we look for the ghosts of Alabama's past in this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Well, Casey Sepp, thank you for coming on to The Reckon Interview. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It seems like, despite the fact that she passed a few years ago, Harper Lee is having another cultural moment. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird is the best-selling show in history on Broadway. And then your book, Furious Hours, was a New York Times bestseller. And then when her book came out a few years ago, uh, Ghost at a Watchman, that was also a smash hit. Um, you yourself, obviously, are very interested in Harper Lee. You wrote a book about her. What is it about Harper Lee that still resonates with people 50-plus years after to Kill a Mockingbird came out? Gosh, that's such a great question. And fundamentally, you know, one of the most important when you're writing about her. And I think that To Kill a Mockingbird is one of these novels. It's it's a true rarity. It not only had an impact in the time when it was published, but it has remained in, enduringly useful to the culture. So it's a book that gives us an occasion to talk about race and difference and diversity, and that's only become more necessary. So I think even though the book came out in 1960, it's still the go-to book in 2015. 2016 and still today in 2019. And, you know, now that it's kind of accumulated all of that cultural capital, it's truly one of the few intergenerational texts. So your parents read it, we read it, our children read it, and we have something to talk about. And the characters can facilitate conversations that might otherwise be difficult. Um, you know, and I'm mindful my book is about a kind of unknown period of Harper Lee's life, but that novel and then Ghost at a Watchman and the kind of story between those two stories is just really rich and and it hasn't aged and it, it hasn't passed out of the culture. And so far it's not been replaced by something more contemporary. Do you remember the first time that you read it? I wish I could tell you the specific time. I mean, what I can tell you is my mother read it to me and it made a huge impression and it went on to be one of those books I reread a lot. And um, there's there's no reason for you even looking at me to know this and certainly none for the people listening to know this. But as a kid, I looked a lot like Mary Badham, the okay. actress who played Scout in the film. And so there's a little bit of an over-identification with that character. And my dad wasn't a lawyer, but I was a total daddy's girl and I was a total tomboy. And so, you know, even beyond the kind of narrative infrastructure of the novel, that character was just hugely important to me as a kid. And so I returned to it over and over again. And, you know, I just think we all, if we're lucky, we have a book as a kid that's very meaningful to us. And that was my book. Uh, at least up until Ghost Had a Watchman came out. I mean, I, I think Harper Lee was one of those people that was kind of cemented in a moment in time. 
for one book and one film. And a lot of people may not have even realized that she was still alive when Ghost at a Watchman came out. Um, you, after, after the book was announced, went down to Monroeville to kind of explore the backstory of whether or not Harper Lee wanted that book to be published. Uh, what is your takeaway from that? Do you think that she did? Gosh, you know, you make it sound like I had this original idea. You know, look, there were dozens of journalists who just, you know, some of them, you know, drove locally to get to Monroeville and some of us kind of parachuted in. And, you know, there was a tremendous amount of interest in that book. And it wasn't just did she want it published. There were real questions about the provenance of the manuscript and about the publication history of both books. And so there were a lot of questions and a lot of rumors and a lot of gossip and a lot of concern for her. And you know, that concern translated around the world. She was just a beloved author. And, you know, we were talking about why people love To Kill a Mockingbird. And I think another equally interesting question is just why are they interested in the woman who wrote it? And poor Harper Lee, you know, by not talking about her life only made her life more interesting to the world. (laughs) And there was this incongruity between, you know, what was known and what people wanted to know. And so some of, I think, what was going on with Ghost at a Watchman was just the hope that we wouldn't learn only about that book, but that we would finally learn all the other questions that, that we had wondered about when it came to her as a writer and a citizen and a thinker. And so I think, you know, right away, I, I was interested in the mystery of Ghost at a Watchman and in the question of her ability to consent to its publication. But I was also just interested in her life and her work. And to your point, you know, because To Kill a Mockingbird is set during the Great Depression, people, you know, barely knew she was alive in the 60s after, after the novel came out. And certainly by the awe, she was a complete anachronism and people didn't know she was alive, much less that she had been living this kind of cosmopolitan life in New York City. So there's just a lot more to learn about her life. And um, Watchmen became the opportunity for doing that. And I think people also kind of project a lot onto Harper Lee and onto Atticus Finch. Uh, obviously, there were a lot of people who were very upset about his portrayal in Ghost at a Watchmen. Uh, and then I think that there are also people who have kind of built Harper Lee into this progressive civil rights pioneer. And in your book, uh, in, in the section about Harper Lee, you know, you kind of pull back the curtain on that a little bit and show that, you know, Harper Lee wasn't a marcher. She wasn't necessarily, I mean, she, she might've been closer to go set a watchman's, uh, Jean Louise Finch than she was to, scout in To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. I mean, Harper Lee's politics is, um, you know, her politics were truly mysterious. By not doing interviews after 1964, you're right to characterize it as a kind of, you know, projection of the culture onto her. And I think in ways that are really admirable, she must have realized the book was doing more for the world than maybe she personally could have. And that by not sharing her opinion on every issue of the day, the book could continue to be a kind of monument in the culture to goodness and equality and, you know, aspirational morality, and that she could only damage what the book was doing in the world. And so, right, I I think it was surprising to me to realize, you know, she joked about being a member of the NAACP in a letter she wrote, but there's no evidence she was. And right, to the point of what was going on in Alabama around this time, you know, a lot of folks, obviously African-Americans leading the way, but a lot of white folks by that point in, in her life were joining marches, were registering voters, were participating in an effort to make Alabama and the whole nation more equitable than it was. And Harper Lee was kind of on the sidelines of that. And I think the most illustrative example of that tension between what the world thought her politics were and what 
her actual kind of lived politics were is um, right when Martin Luther King Jr. was writing the letter from Birmingham jail. So at a moment when journalists from around the country were rushing to Alabama to tell the story of civil rights, Harper Lee and Truman Capote were headed out to Kansas Mm -hmm. and they were working on In Cold Blood, which is a very interesting book and an important book in lots of other ways. But, you know, it was a book about white victims and white murderers and about a white town, about a rural community. And, you know, it's, it's worth asking, why wasn't Harper Lee interested in the ongoing story of civil rights? Um, and beyond that, you know, there's another kind of irony about the timeline of her life and the timeline of civil rights, which is, you know, she was at the White House the day the Civil Rights Act finally passed, but she wasn't there to celebrate that passage or to even talk about what that federal legislation might mean. She was there to meet with high school students um, who were being honored as presidential scholars. And I don't mean to make light of that. It's wonderful for her to have been there. And, you know, I've read news reports about the impressions she made on some of those students. But again, there, there were a few voices that would have been as powerful and as meaningful as hers. And indeed, Gregory Peck, for instance, used his cultural cachet from playing Atticus in the film to go and promote Democratic candidates and to go promote the cause of civil rights. And Harper Lee was just reticent about that and, and everything else, really. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to suggest, I guess, that Harper Lee... Um Missed out on an opportunity to to represent Alabama because obviously uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is, yeah, is such, it, yeah, yeah. Her whole life it, it's such a cultural expert. Yeah. But but yeah. you know in that moment she could have been a, a good counterpoint to a to a George Wallace or something. Sure, I mean yes, I mean in one of these moments. So obviously you know my book is about this nonfiction project she undertook and she did write a little bit of journalism both in college and immediately after. And you know look, I mean Gay Talisa just graduated from the University of Alabama and mm-hmm. lots of folks were coming down to cover the Selma marches and. You can just imagine a different version of Harper Lee writing, you know, the New Yorker profile of George Wallace yeah, or writing the New York Times op-ed about um, progress in the state. And, you know, I just think to be fair to Harper Lee, she did have a different vision of the artist in the world. Sure. Um, and it's one she had in common, for instance, with Eudora Welty, who said, you know, my work is my work. And and that's what I want to speak to the world, not my personal life, not a series of ongoing interviews. And, you know, she would never have come on the Reckon podcast. <laughs> you know, she would have said, CF, I my novel. Really <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I don't, that that's not to pass judgment on her, no. but it is just to put her in context. Yeah. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, she was contextless for much of her life. And that at least allowed the opportunity for people like Truman Capote to create that context for her. I mean, one of the myths that's always kind of plagued Harper Lee is that, uh, Truman Capote wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, yeah, which is absurd. Yeah, sure. I, I agree. And, you know, look, there. Harper Lee took a lot of mysteries to her grave. But yes, I'm always very happy to reassure people there is absolutely no evidence Capote wrote it. And you better believe he would have bragged about it if he had. And I just love, you know, when I started working on the book and I would be interviewing people, they would ask me about that. You know, yeah. they'd say, come on, did he write it? Did he help? How much of it did he write? And, you know, the pendulum has truly swung at this point because now I get asked whether she wrote in cold blood. Right. And, you know, whether there's not enough attribution, because, of course, we we now know from 
the archival records, um, how much work she, she did put into that book. And, you know, again, I, I don't want to overstate that. Of course she didn't. And as it turns out, she had so many objections to that book, she wouldn't have wanted to appear on its cover and, you know, sure. made do with the dedication. But yes, it's just, you know, times have changed and now people want to know, you know, did she write in cold blood? It was a deeply satisfying part of that book when you get to the point where like she hands over like hundreds of typed pages of all of the notes basically arranged into a, a narrative form. Yeah, we should all be so lucky as to find our Harper Lee, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting friendship, but in that moment, just a, a, a real act of generosity. Well, let's talk about The Reverend. Uh, Ghost Out of Watchmen came out after To Kill a Mockingbird, but was written before. And uh, Harper Lee contributed in the note taking and the research and a lot of the bulk of the work for In Cold Blood. But The Reverend is this uh, unpublished, perhaps unwritten um, book, a true crime story, uh, a true crime nonfiction book, not a true crime novel like um, Truman Capote's that Harper Lee was working on at some point in her career. When did you first learn about the potential existence of such a book? And you know, how did that lead you down this path of writing this work? Yeah, sure. So when I was working on, um, so I went down to write about Ghost at a Watchman for the New Yorker. And while I was there, I basically asked to speak to anyone who had had interactions with Harper Lee's attorney. And, you know, that was, I wanted to know if she wrote your granddaddy's will or you went to church with her or whatever. And I got put in touch with the Radney family who had been in contact with Harper Lee's lawyer because they had tried to get back some materials that Harper Lee um, had been loaned in the 1970s when she was working on her version of this story. And just to be clear, this is, you know, a series of murders that took place in Alex City from 1970 to 1977. And the alleged serial killer was gunned down at the funeral of his last victim. And that vigilante um, faced a, you know, a murder trial. And that's when Harper Lee got interested. So in the fall of 77, she came to Alex City and she spent nine months in town. She lived for a little while in a cabin on Lake Martin and she stayed at the Horseshoe Bend Motel, which was owned by her niece's husband. And, you know, know, she did everything, if you've seen Capote or Infamous, that they did in Kansas. You know, she knocked on doors and interviewed relatives of the victims. She interviewed law enforcement officers. She interviewed lawyers. She um, got copies of court records and death certificates and autopsy files. And, you know, she gathered everything you would need to write a nonfiction book. And she did all these interviews and, you know, made her own notes there. And so that tremendously productive period of nine months where she was very visible, very public about her ambitions, talked about the, the book, talked about this nonfiction project, insisted she was doing, you know, old fashioned journalism and just wanted the facts and, you know, went around town beating this drum. She then started to write. And, you know, after a tremendously successful period of reporting, she was met by basically what had plagued her as a writer for most of the 60s and the early 70s, which was depression, a drinking problem, ongoing perfectionism, and, and a form of writer's block that just made it very hard for her to actually do the task of writing. And so even though the reporting had postponed that, when she got to work, she was kind of stymied. And for a little while, she would still talk about it. And for a little while, you know, she was in Eufaula working on this book at her sister's house. And she would check in with people in Alex City, or she would tell friends in New York that she was working on this true crime project. But then she started to 
quiet down about it. And she wouldn't take questions or, um, you know, she would just not talk about work in general. But obviously the people in Alex City who she had interviewed were very curious about whatever happened to this book. And, you know, no one was more curious than Tom Radney, this lawyer who had, um, I guess, concluded that he was going to be the hero of said book because he had not only defended the reverend for about 10 years, but he then went on to defend the vigilante who murdered his former client. And so he just thought he was going to be a central character. And for that reason, you know, he was incredibly happy. Harper Lee was interested and very supportive and in fact had given her all of his legal files related to the case. And those were the files the Radneys were trying to get back. And so they had been in touch with, couldn't get in touch with Harper Lee directly. They were dealing with her lawyer. And, you know, it was in talking to them right away, I just realized, you know, I had read the biography of Harper Lee that came out, but it just sounded like this had been, you know, a kind of small, quickly abandoned effort. But talking to the Radneys and talking to um, one of the journalists who had covered the story for the Alex City Outlook and um, getting in touch with some of the other folks who had been involved in the original case, it was just so clear it was a more substantial effort. Um, and, and that probably she had written some, if not all of the manuscript and more than that, that there was just this interesting story to tell, you know, that there were these characters who had never really been brought into the kind of nonfiction book she imagined writing. And that more than that, you know, there was this opportunity to tell their story in tandem with hers. Hmm. And I think that's what was interesting for me about Furious Hours. I wrote a short article about the Maxwell case for the New Yorker, but right away started to hear from even more people, um, and some of them just truly delightful to the point about how wrong we all were about Harper Lee, the recluse. One of them was, you know, a woman whose mother had met Harper Lee and they had a cabin by the lake too, and just invited her over for pimento cheese sandwiches. And, you know, <laughs> she signed their copy of To Kill yeah. a Mockingbird. And, you know, it was just clear there was this period of her life, you know, here was Watchmen. And to your point, it was the earliest manuscript she'd ever written but it was being paraded out at the end of her life. And, you know, the whole conversation about Harper Lee at that point was about, you know, elder abuse and diminished capacity. And um, I felt like with the Reverend, the story was here was a writer in her prime trying to overcome tremendous writer's block and who had undertaken this tremendously ambitious book and interesting book and surprising book. And one that was, she hoped going to be a corrective for In Cold Blood, mm-hmm. some of the decisions she hadn't approved of that Capote had made. Um, so here was this chance to look at, you know, the one hit wonder who was trying to get out from under that. And that, you know, the story itself was interesting, but her involvement made it even more interesting. And it didn't need to just be a murder story. It could be a political story and a literary story. And, you know, again, when it came to Harper Lee, I felt like, look, there already was a biography out in the world. There was a memoir by a journalist who had gotten to know the Lee sisters. You know, there had been books about Mm -hmm. Harper Lee. Mm -hmm. And so I thought a lot about, well, what's this one going to do differently? And the answer was, it's going to present her in the prime of her life, full of ambition and talent. And to my mind, it's going to treat her the way she wanted to be treated, which as, which, you know, is as a writer through and through. You, You break your book up into basically three decisive parts. You know, there's the first section that is kind of the true crime story of Willie Maxwell, this uh, serial killing, alleged serial killing priest uh, who is rumored to be a pastor who is who is called a voodoo priest among members of the community. And then Tom Radney, the lawyer that you were talking about and kind of his political ambitions and how a lot of his um, more progressive ideas were never fully realized. Then, of course, the Harper Lee section. And there's kind of this through line of, you know, unfinished work. Um, Maxwell's never really prosecuted. Uh, Radney's 
career ambitions and and sort of more progressive ideals are never obviously never catch on within his community. And then Harper Lee doesn't finish the book, and you know I'm reading it, and it, that seems to be kind of the story of the South itself. Um, you know, there's a reason why we're so rich for true crime podcasts is that there's a lot of uh, unfinished and unprosecuted uh, crimes down here. Um, you know, starting with the with America's first crime of uh, slavery and, and moving forward to today. And then, of course, the literary community and kind of the um, unfinished work of, of political movements. And you were also down here working on the book during um, probably the most surprising election in Alabama's uh, recent history, the Doug Jones-Roy Moore election. Um, what were your impressions of Alabama coming in? And then how did this process change change your concept of Alabama. And well, I just have to say first that you're my ideal reader because <laughs> in the original title of the book, um, the word unfinished appeared. And that was to my mind, you know, look, superficially, these characters are connected by the murders. You know, the Reverend was accused of them. Tom Randy defended him through those um, criminal investigations and occasional trials. And then Harper Lee came to write about them. So that's the kind of superficial connection. But you're absolutely right that the kind of deeper one and the interesting one for me and the reason I felt like there could be meaningful chimes between these characters was was that unfinishedness and the ambition we bring to the world and the ways that structural forces in the world, you know, work against us and even, you know, personal frustrations when it came to Harper Lee and, or social ones when it came to Tom Radney, or again, these kind of big structural forces that took a man like Willie Maxwell, you know, a distinguished army veteran and deprived him of opportunity and made it very difficult for him to be as entrepreneurial as he would have been in a different time or to get the kind of education he obviously um, could have mastered his way through. He was eloquent and erudite and just um, systematically couldn't make his way in the world that, um, you know, for instance, I, I use the contrast of Willie Maxwell goes into the army and has, you know, this distinguished service record and he comes home to Alabama and he goes to work for the cotton mill that made his uniform. Mm -hmm. And Tom Radney comes back from the JAG Corps and has trial experience and, you know, starts up a small town law firm and prospers. And so unfinishedness really is the kind of deep current of the book. And, you know, that's, I'm sure some people would say that's a little bit of an apology because there are questions I can never answer. Sure. And I actually think that, you know, kind of epistemologically, it's just how we live in the world. Um, unfortunately, a lot of true crime stories are not solved. Um, a lot of writers or artists of any kind or any one of us fails to live up to our potential and is thwarted in some way. And so it did feel like that's the kind of deep connection that they had to one another. So thanks for noticing that. And I, I hope that, you know, there's a reason it came off the subtitle, which is, you know, my publisher kind of joked and said, nobody wants to pick up a book that's unfinished. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just think it is such an important thing to think about, especially when it comes to true crime. Too often true crime writers present, you know, conjecture as evidence or they um, fill in with psychological speculation. And it's one of the things Harper Lee didn't like about In Cold Blood. So first of all, thanks for that. But um, when it comes to Alabama, I can't say I had many expectations. I had always wanted to see Monroeville. So I took that assignment mostly, you know, I loved Harper Lee's work and I just, I knew not that Mockingbird was autobiographical, but that, you know, she had based Maycomb on Monroeville and I wanted to see it. And I loved that little town. You know, I spent, I guess like two and a half weeks there during that first spell. And, um, I didn't grow up in the South. I grew up in, in Maryland, but in a part of Maryland that is agricultural and rural. And, you know, there's a reason I love that book so much as a kid. I felt like the town where I went to 
high school was a kind of make them. So to cut you off real quick. So, oh. so, uh, so is that definitive then Maryland is not the South? Gosh, I mean, I don't really want to, <laughs> yeah, I think this is one of the things we're supposed to debate and, you know, my God, people on the Eastern shore would be pulling their hair out if they heard me say that they, you know, they have their rebel flags too, and their CSA sure. monuments. And obviously we're South Harriet of the Mason Dixon line. Yes. I mean, look, there's a real moral genealogy to the part of Maryland where I'm from and it's Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. And yet, you know, we have our own monument battles and there was and John a, Wilkes Booth, of course, and John Wilkes Booth. But yeah. there was this tremendous fight in the town where I went to high school about putting up a monument to mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass when there is a CSA one right outside of that courthouse. So we have our own struggles with, with our history too. And, um, I don't want to make light of it, but you know, I, I have a feeling most people in Alabama would tell me I'm not from the South. I, I'm sure if you asked a lot of the people where I grew up, they'd say they're Southern and, you know, confessions of a failed Southern lady, obviously like Baltimore used to think of itself as Southern. Sure. It was not an accident that the line is where it is, but. Um, and the census designates it all the way up to. Delaware yeah, there you go. The right. South. So, but I feel like I should be, you know, respectful of your audience and, <laughs> sure. you know, not lay claim to an identity. They, okay. you know, self-identification is an interesting yeah. problem. And we can even talk about Harper Lee when it comes to, you know, was she a Southern writer or not? Coming up, we chat more with Casey about the South, writer's block and the building of Lake Martin. Who are Alabama fans? I think the Alabama fan base is easily the most passionate and concerned fan base in the country. They also are highly sensitive to what other people do and say. What does Alabama football really mean to them? At the end of the day, I, I would much rather go to the national championship and lose than go to any other bowl game. The podcast Bammers takes you inside the minds of Alabama football fans, their obsession with the Crimson Tide, and how far they take it year in and year out. Just because I dig a ditch from 8 to 5 and you graduated from the University of Alabama, that don't make you no better, no worse than me. Just search Bammers on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Bammers, inside the minds of Alabama football fans. Um, you talked about spending time in Alexander City and Lake Martin. I think I've spent, you know, more than half of my life going to Lake Martin every summer. And I just, you know, I love the place. Uh, ben Russell makes an appearance in your book and his grandfather make an appearance in your book, um, the Russells. Uh, and, you know, I see them at Church in the Pines on Sunday mm -hmm. mornings at Lake Martin. And, you know, you do a lot of wonderful things in the book, like the, the, uh, True crime aspect of the Willie Maxwell part is fascinating. The political aspect of the Tom Radney part is fascinating. And then, of course, you know, Harper Lee's um, torturous writer's block is is very relatable. But I think uh, one <laughs> to of, you to, to me. Oh, gosh, not Although, to me at all. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. kind of the hardest well, part. I thought she was like, you know, I thought she was a drama queen and well, exaggerating. I, and then, yes, it's heartbreaking. No, to realize, I don't necessarily yeah. think I'm going to sit at like, a, you know, I'm not Hemingway. I don't think you sit at a, at a typewriter and bleed. But there was a part that I that resonated with me, which was that part of why she struggled to write her next book was that her editor for To Kill a Mockingbird had passed away. And I think that, you know, kind of having that sounding board that you can trust, uh, even if it wasn't something I can relate to on an individual level, it's something, it's a fear that I could, uh, you know. Sure. And you've worked as that. an editor yeah, sure. too. So I'm sure you feel like occasionally you are the support system for some writer. Yeah. I hope John Archibald appreciates that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, I think you're, I think we're going to talk about Lake Martin in a minute, yeah. but I'll just say, you know, I think, there are a couple of relationships that I find really interesting 
in the book and in Harper Lee's life. And it's surprising because quite often our lives are oriented around romantic partnership. And the most interesting relationship in someone's life is, you know, their marriage or their divorce in in other cases, but, um, or the, you know, Dante-esque Beatrice, you know, the unrequited love. When it comes to Harper Lee, I actually think the two most interesting relationships in her life, one is the friendship with Capote and it's fraught and it's difficult and it's interesting and it's rivalrous. But the other is this editorial relationship. And it's a triad, really. It involves a very talented agent and a very talented editor who, on reading Ghost at a Watchman, decided they could make a better book from those characters and that setting. <laughs> and I think it's a very beautiful story. You know, you're talking about Hemingway, and quite often when people want to talk about those editorial relationships, they reach for Maxwell Perkins, <laughs> and they talk about Thomas Wolfe, or they talk about Hemingway or Fitzgerald. And you know, that's a little of what was going on for Harper Lee. There's this yeah. woman, Tay Hohoff, who, you know, helped her with the deadlines and helped her with the structure and talked through the issues in Watchmen. And it took two and a half years to turn Watchmen into Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say Harper Lee didn't write the book, which sometimes people say to me, you know, do you think the editor wrote it? Of course not. But that editor did what great editors do, which is bring better work out of someone. And I think it's beautiful and interesting. And it turns out that, right, losing that editor, that editor died um, before she started working on The Reverend, um, and so had that agent, that is some of what she lost. And as a writer, it seems like she needed that infrastructure and supervision and coaching. And more broadly, it's some of what the news industry is losing and has lost in the last decade. Totally, yeah. that, That part, I guess, spoke to me in that... You know, you look around newsrooms that are half the size or a quarter the size or a tenth of the size that they once were and kind of that relationship of trusted and, and coaching up through the right. ranks, um, I think, is something that American writing uh, needs. Um, totally. And yeah. So, yeah. I, no, but I don't necessarily uh, sit over a bottle of whiskey and, and <laughs> worry about everything. Um, but. But I think I derailed you. No, I think okay. you were on that, the way I to was late. basically going to say, but one of my favorite aspects of the book is your description of the formation of Lake Martin because I've spent, I don't know, 20 summers on that lake and Mm. I had never really thought very deeply, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, about, you know, how... But did you knew it was, was you knew it was man-made. You I knew, knew it was yeah, all the lakes yeah. in Alabama, I believe, are man-made. Right. And and, um, so I knew that kind of instinctually. Um, and after reading uh, Robert Caro's first Lyndon Johnson book, you know, I, I started thinking a little bit more about kind of life before electricity and what that, what it meant to bring electricity to a region. And so I was only really thinking about it in kind of the positive way of like, oh, now everybody kind of had hydroelectric power and that's going to really transform life in Alexander City. Um, you know, you open the book with a very poetic look at uh, kind of the farmers watching their watermelon crops rise uh, with with the water. And I'm just curious as to what made you decide that you needed to tell that part of the story, because it's not necessarily essential um, to the overall Harper Lee narrative. Or maybe it is. Maybe, maybe tell, me, sure. tell me why it is. <laughs> you know, essentialism is debatable. Um, but yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it. So the truth is, I when I saw Lake Martin, I thought it was so beautiful. And, you know, we were talking about my impressions of Alabama. I knew some about the industrial cities, Birmingham, Montgomery. Um, but I had no idea just how beautiful parts of Alabama are. And that includes Lake Martin, this really just gorgeous, you know, there's a reason everybody goes and spends their summers there. And so I thought it was tremendously beautiful. 
beautiful. And I wanted to make sure the book sort of captured that aspect of, of the state today and of, of what it was like then. And obviously, Coosa County is one of the most rural counties in the state. So I just wanted it to, to bring to life some of that setting and, and not just have these kind of violent stories be the only knowledge people got of Alexander City. And more than that, when I was looking at Lake Martin and I was, you know, I got kind of every history of Alabama and this region I could find because I'm a nerd and a deep researcher. And, um, you know, I got the heritage books and I was reading all these family histories and things. But when I read the history of Lake Martin, I knew right away it needed to be in the book. Um, because it is an interesting story about ambition and violence and how powerful people make decisions that reshape a lot of other people's lives. And so, right. On the one hand, you could tell the story of hydroelectric power, you know, and I say this, you know, it, it, it brought lights to living rooms so people could read scripture at night and Mm -hmm. it brought, you know, heat and air conditioning to the lives of elderly people who, you know, are suffering without them. And it mechanized cotton mills and it brought prosperity to certain towns, but it did also literally erase certain communities and whole histories. You know, there are creek towns that were submerged under Lake Martin and there are communities and burial grounds. And someone had told me the haunted version of that. You know, they told me I was renting a place um, in Jackson's gap. And, you know, they said, be sure I listen for the church bells at night because sometimes <laughs> they ring out from under Lake Martin. So they were trying to spook me, but what they actually did was enchant me. And I thought, you know, how interesting. Ultimately, I'm trying to tell a story about Harper Lee, which she tried so desperately to erase and hide. And that's a lot of what happens inadvertently with history. Stories get buried and submerged and, you know, certain stories are preserved and others aren't or archival records are lost. And so the kind of metaphoric register was there right away. And then in the history of the region, it just felt so important to tell you how Alexander City came to be the town it was. And, you know, that's the kind of, again, the long version, the short version is, you know, I grew up reading Genesis and I feel like there's always an origin story. And especially when we talk about violence and, you know, that there there are two chapters in the book that take their titles from scripture. And one is divide the waters from the waters. Mm -hmm. And that is about how evil came into the world. And that was another thing I wanted to make sure I was talking about, because this isn't just one story of violence. It links into a lot lot of other violent stories about Alabama and this country and just about the human experience. And the other is deep calling to deep. And that's from a Psalm that Harper Lee quoted when someone asked her, you know, about why she helped Capote with his true crime book. And it turned out she was obsessed with true crime, you know, going all the way back to her sisters and Leopold and Loeb, you know, they read murder stories, they sat in on trials and, you know, she was confessing an almost prurient interest, but linking it to this kind of spiritual identity about who she was and how you could make sense of the world. So that's sort of what was going on for me. And um, I just thought, you know, the Talapusa was so interesting and the way that the South was remade for hydroelectric power is an important story to tell because like a lot of stories, there are winners and there are losers and it's hard to sort them out. And um, anyway, yeah, I mean, I just, I also just kind of love waterways and rivers and natural Um, history is very interesting to me. And so I felt like, you know, I knew the whole book couldn't be that. (laughs) I don't get to do it for Monroeville, for instance, you know, there are these kind of other abbreviated histories, but, um, and God knows I left out, you know, I did all this research into the um, very, very early history of, you know, the actual landmass of Alabama and, you know, back to the ice age. So I spare you some of the research (laughs) I did, you know, I just start with the origins of the lake. Um, but you know, again, I also just think part of the reason I wanted to do that is 
I can't help but think it's, it's part of how Harper Lee would have told the story. And she was interested in Thomas Martin and she was interested in Alabama power and she was interested in the Horseshoe Bend battlefield. And I just think, you know, again, you look at Mockingbird and almost certainly she'd have been trying to tell the deep history of Alabama using this contemporary true crime story. Well, and we are recording this interview in uh, Starline Books in Chattanooga, um, virtually across the street from TVA. And so, you know, that, that battle between kind of the North Alabama, Tennessee Valley region and TVA, you know, kind of viewing electricity as a public good because it's public lakes versus Alabama power. Yeah. And that Alabama power case, you know, over Lake Martin went all the way to the Supreme court because there was a question about whether it was public or private or whether you could use the same regulations to force people to sell their land to facilitate the project. And yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're getting the kind of liner notes here, but I'll tell you, I I listened to Jason Isbell's TVA song over and over and over again while I was writing that part of the book. So part of it is just, again, you think about these watershed moments in, in people's lives or in the lives of a community. And my God, I can't imagine the first time you saw lights flicker on in your community or Mm -hmm. in your living room. And, you know, those experiences are lost to us today because it feels so familiar or, you know, again, your family's farm, you come back a few days later and it's underwater. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, again, those it's it's nice when you can bring the past to life like that. And ultimately, the book mostly takes place in the 1970s. But the people living through the 1970s, a lot of them lived through that experience of the flooding of Lake Martin. So I wanted it to be kind of saturated with their lived experience, too. When you were on the lake, did you take some time to, you know, have a little fun, go skiing or anything? Or did you? Mostly- oh, I thought you were going to say like a seance <laughs> or something. No, um, no, no, no. Did I? No, I didn't go skiing. I went swimming a couple okay. of times and um, gosh, I loved, I, I, I go back and forth between being a morning person and not, but, but a lot of the time in Jackson's Gap and Dadeville, I was a morning person because I love to watch the fog in the morning. Yeah. It's just beautiful and strange. And um, so I, I did get to spend, you know, call it recreation. I would just sit and read my book outside on the dock and that kind of stuff. So yes, I I was very glad to have time there. There's another undercurrent that interested both Harper Lee and I'm going to assume you of um, race. Uh, You talked earlier about In Cold Blood being kind of white victims, white perpetrators, um, and the Willie Maxwell case being African-Americans. And you mentioned that his standing in the church might have been part of why he was able to get away with it for so long. And I had never really thought very deeply about this until reading the book, but sort of the suggestion that um, black serial killers, you know, for all of the conservative pontificating about black on black crime, black serial killers and sort of black murders and black justice is not something that uh, is championed by local politicians. Um, And, you know, Harper Lee coming down and wanting to tell that story and that being potentially part of why she ultimately felt like she couldn't tell that story. Yeah. I mean, I think if you'd given me like 10,000 years to imagine what Harper Lee was trying to write after To Kill a Mockingbird, this book would not have been it. Yeah. Um, And maybe I would have come around to the true crime part of it, but I just, it's a very, look, it's straightforwardly a great story as it were. It has these Gothic elements. It has insurance fraud. It has murder. It has voodoo. You know, look, John Barron wishes he had found this story 10 years ago. So there are some ways in which it makes a lot of sense, but there are others in which it makes no sense. And I think to your point, those are the, those are some of what I think made it hard for her to write her book and what would have made it 
less interesting to publishers. So straightforwardly, you know, the woman who gave us To Kill a Mockingbird, the trial of Tom Robinson, was probably not expected to decide to write her next book about a statistically anomalous black serial killer who was accused of domestic violence, killing two wives, a brother, a nephew, a stepdaughter, whose motive was insurance fraud, whose attorney was white and managed to help him evade justice, but whose black vigilante murderer was then also acquitted. So in some ways, you know, these are two black men who supposedly got away with murder. Again, you want to talk about statistically anomalous. I think a lot of the people who read the book wonder, obviously, African-Americans were convicted of, you know, less serious crimes with less evidence at this time. And it's very odd the reverend got away with what he did, supposedly, and that Robert Burns was not convicted of murder. There were 300 witnesses the day he gunned down the reverend in cold blood, in a funeral home chapel. It was highly public. It was zealously prosecuted, but an all-white jury acquitted him. So there are a lot of surprises and ironies and kind of unbelievabilities to this story. Were anyone telling it, but especially Harper Lee. And you can imagine, you know, probably if you had said find a true crime story, what most of us would have expected her to do was find a kind of innocence project like case, you know, a story like the one Brian Stevenson tells in Just Mercy. And in fact, that case took place right in Monroeville. So there are obviously on the whole more miscarriages of justice when it comes in the, in the direction of prosecution and conviction and wrongful imprisonment when it comes to African-Americans in our judicial system, not just in Alabama, but around the country, to be clear. So it's odd that this is the story she wanted to tell. And I think ultimately probably is one of the things that frustrated her, not just that she was expected to bring to life black characters, which she had not done as well in Mockingbird as she had a lot of the white characters. But more than that, it's just it was politically, you know, a racially charged case. And it would have generated a lot of conversations probably that were very different from To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in that way, it's it's utterly surprising. And then, yes, almost certainly con- contributory to what made it difficult for her to focus on it. And, you know, we were, we were talking about In Cold Blood and the case that Capote chose. I mean, again, it's also... It was an odd choice. You know, true crime in general still focuses on the kinds of victims and the kinds of stories that Truman Capote told. You know, if you look at the cases that have been sensationalized over the last few over the last few years or the last decade or the kinds of things that people want to binge watch, it's quite often still, you know, missing white women yeah. and or murdered white women. And you know, in that way, again, she just chose an odd story that doesn't kind of fit the narrative most true crime writers are telling. Now, there are exceptions to that. And there are obviously, um, you know, writers of color who write true crime. And I think one of the most interesting things in terms of Harper Lee's literary context, around the time she was working on The Reverend, James Baldwin actually wrote a book about the Atlanta child murders. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting book. And, you know, it doesn't do what true crime normally does. It's meditative and musing. And it wants to look at, you know, cultural and social um, theories and themes. And, you know, it's just interesting. Obviously, we don't have Harper Lee's The Reverend to see what she would have done. Maybe it would have been a podcast. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> In the age of podcasting, I'm like, look, give her, you know, a great sound guy and a great, you know, audio editor. Maybe they would have pulled it out of her. Look, she had a tape recorder with her in Alex City. She was recording some of those interviews. So, you know, I dream of the day the Harper Lee archive is opened and these audio tapes emerge. And, um, you know, it might be a lot of fun to get to hear her interviewing the Reverend's Widow or Tom Radney or, you know, any number of interesting characters she crossed paths with. But yes, on the whole, it's just an odd project for her to have undertaken. 
And I think one other parallel to kind of close uh, between your book and To Kill a Mockingbird is people remember To Kill a Mockingbird for the Tom Robinson trial and mm-hmm. Atticus Finch and stand up Gene Louise, your father's passing by. But I, I reread it um, in March. I actually listened to the audiobook version of it. Mm-hmm. I think it was Sissy Spacek narrated it, and it's great. And, I, you know, I had just forgotten that the trial doesn't take place until two-thirds of the way through the book, and it's such like a distinct and memorable section of the book. But before that, you're dealing with kind of the themes of growing up and the rural South during the Great Depression and Mrs. DeBose dealing with her addiction. And the and legacy of the Confederacy. Legacy of the Confederacy, right. uh, small town politics, and, you know, just kind of the joy of being a child in in Monroeville or Maycomb, as the case may be. And also, I mean, a lot of what you're doing in your book, the kind of history of the town and the genealogy of the people and things like that. Um, your book is, is sort of... The inverse of that, the first third focuses on the uh, the murder and the trial, and then the um, the last half of the book uh, deals with grown up Harper Lee, and in so in some ways, it's kind of a nice companion piece to to Kelly Mockingbird and to Ghost at a Watchman. Was that conscious? Was it happenstance that? Uh, I mean, look, I read that book over and over and over again as a kid. And certainly when I was working on this book, I thought a lot about how it works. And, you know, you're not the only person surprised by rereading it as an adult. You know, that the film adaptation is beautiful, but it really taints your sense of the kind of structure of the book because, you know, you have Gregory Peck playing the role of Atticus Finch. The trial dominates the film in a way it doesn't dominate the novel. So I thought a lot about it and thought about, you know, how to make sure even when I wasn't talking about the novel that I was reminding people Harper Lee was involved in the story. And so, you know, that's why, you know, in the heat of the summer of 77 that the in the opening pages of the book, you know, men's collars are basically wilting and, you know, they're getting, you know, sweaty under their arms. And so I was always looking for ways to sort of bring the novel in. But for me rereading it, the most shocking thing was actually at the very end of the novel, there's a surprising moment of vigilante justice. And obviously the Maxwell case at its heart is about vigilantism and about how we use our moral discernment to enforce the law or not, or to enforce deeper laws is what some would argue. And I was so shocked. I had always missed it the way in which the book sort of confronts you with a moral conundrum about what to do with Boo Radley. Mm -hmm. And I'd been seized by the kind of moment of revelation for the children, but I had always ignored this kind of backroom politicking of, you know, Atticus and the sheriff and the judge deciding not to go forward with a trial when obviously a murder has been committed. And so there I realized, you know, okay, here's Harper Lee. She has had the same interest since childhood. She wants to know when we enforce the law and how we enforce it and how evenly we do and how fair or just or unjust the the arena of the courtroom really is and who's even brought, you know, to trial there. So that was the kind of surprising thing for me. It wasn't structural. It was moral. And and it really chimed with this other case. And it, it made sense to me a little bit more of what was interesting to her about the Maxwell case. And it wasn't even just the reverend. It was the vigilante and the lawyer's decisions around representing them and the jury's decisions about which laws to enforce and how zealously. Well, thank you so much. It's a uh, truly masterful book, and it will deepen your understanding of Harper Lee, of Alabama, of 
racism of justice, uh, pick it up at Starline Books in Chattanooga or any other uh, bookstore in your area. And Casey, thanks so much for coming by. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And if you'll, you know, subject your listeners to my, you know, push for you guys. I love AL.com and I really, you know, got started reading it and all the time I spent down there. And the truth is you can't write a book like mine without local news. And it was only thanks to the archives of the Alex City Outlook and of the Montgomery Advertiser and of the Dadeville Record that I could reconstruct these years. And, you know, we only have that because people subscribed and people read and people shared and people valued the kind of journey journalism that, you know, was hyper local. And so I hope that for folks, you know, if you want more books like this, you've got to support local journalism to get them. I can't think of a better way to close. (laughs) And that's all folks. Thank you again to Casey Sepp for her time and to Starlow for opening up her shop for us on Labor Day. You can find Furious Hours at Starline Books or at any other local bookstore. This episode was produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree, with on-site recording and additional edits by Reckon Radio producer Alexander Ritchie. The show's theme song, Dereconstructed, is produced by Sub Pop Records. It was written and performed by Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires. If you like our show, please subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or go to al.com slash reckon to sign up for our newsletters and to stay up to date on all the latest news in Alabama and from around the South. And thanks, as always, for reckoning with us.